Hello and welcome to Cardography, the podcast that blends Magic the Gathering and game design. I'm your host, Jake Mosby, better known as PR in the custom magic community, and this is episode 15, Reverse Engineer. So today we are doing things a little bit differently. I don't have a guest with me this week. Instead, we'll be answering a pretty common question that I've seen recurring throughout the community for a while now that was posed to me by a user from the Discord channel named Zerator. He asks, how does someone design a balanced and fun limited environment? Can you give us a primer on what steps to take to do so? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in this idea, but let's let's do it. First, we're going to break things down. In order to have a fun or balanced limited environment, first you need to be able to design a limited environment at all. So what is a limited environment? So, so limited is a type of gameplay for Magic uh, where your card pool is limited by literally the cards you have in front of you. So limited environments exist in a few different forms. So the two major things that I want to talk about are that there's drafting and then there's sealed. And, you know, something that we're going to be uh, acknowledging right off the bat but not focusing a lot of our time on is the cube. So a cube is a specific set of cards that doesn't change from uh, playthrough to playthrough where players will essentially either draft or uh, be given sealed pools of this non-changing set of cards in order to create their decks and go from there. Um, So cubes offer you a chance to really regulate the power level uh, by, you know, using either like all the strongest cards or uh, a really narrow band of power. Um, And they also allow you to really control the details of how often a card can show up. So you might have your cube be entirely singleton, or you might have your cube have, I don't know, say 50 copies of Relentless Rats, or 50 copies of Squadron Hawk, you know, whatever. But that that's what cube is. So that's a type of limited environment that is a valid type of limited environment. It's a lot of fun to play, but for today's topic, we're not going to be covering it. Because designing for a cube is just really, really different from designing for a set. Okay. So one of the most important things you're going to need when you're trying to create your own limited environment is a set skeleton. And a set skeleton is a collection of details um, essentially outlining what cards and what attributes of those cards are going to be in existence in your set. Traditionally, a set skeleton will include 101 common cards 80 uncommon cards, 53 rares, and 15 mythics for a large set. Then that breakdown would get broken down even further into the main major colors, right? Typically, you'll end up with somewhere around 18 uh, white commons, 18 blue commons, and so on. Usually, you want to have a pretty regular color balance, You want to make sure that white has the same number of cards as blue and black and red and green and all those so that none of the colors are being left out unless you have a specific reason to do so. By and large, don't exclude colors or don't don't really play with that. There's not really many good reasons to. With a set skeleton, you're not just concerned with the number of cards in each color. 
or even the number of like creatures versus non-creatures or the card types, but you really want to nail down what your mana curve looks like, specifically with the commons and uncommons, to make sure that you have a good range of uh, low-cost, medium-cost, high-cost creatures where that's appropriate, and likewise with spells. Now, in order to fill out your set skeleton, you're going to mostly want to focus on your commons and your uncommons. Those designs form the backbone of your limited environment because they are the cards that players will have the most access to, and therefore they're the most consistent cards players can rely on for their decks. And typically, this means that you really want to have your mechanics showcased at that rarity level, at commons and uncommons specifically. So commons and uncommons are just like the workhorses of your limited environment. They're what players rely on to give themselves a solid foundation. Whereas some of the uncommons and especially the rares and mythics are there much more for a splash of power or something cool or alternative to do in that limited environment that lets you look at the commons and uncommons in a new light. There are a lot of resources out there already detailing a lot more about set skeletons. I really encourage you to check those out. Those resources are provided by the likes of Mark Rosewater or fellow designers who have been on the show before, like Ruben. And because those resources exist, I don't want to spend too much time on set skeletons. And let's move on at this point to the rest of kind of the prerequisites for having a limited environment at all. So once you've filled out your set skeleton and you know, you know what you're going to be designing, the next couple questions you're going to ask are really important to just having a solid foundation for your limited environment. So these come from kind of the core evaluation metrics that you want to ask yourself throughout the design process. So the first question you're going to want to ask yourself when you're doing your core evaluation requirements is does it feel like magic, right? If, if the cards you're making just don't actually look like magic cards, you know, that might be that you like don't have any creatures or there's no depth to the design. Everything's just totally linear. That's a problem. And it's gonna prevent you from being able to take the next steps into having a fun and balanced living environment. And of course, the other question you need to ask yourself is whether each component, each card, is serving your design goal in a meaningful way. We've talked a lot about design goals in the past in this show, but just as a quick summary for what they are, it's about the emotions you're trying to evoke in the player, and you're trying to have your design goal so succinctly put that you can really encapsulate it in just a few words. So as an example, you might have the Innistrad set, right? Where every single card should be advancing the concept of Victorian horror, like gothic horror, right? Or in my Magic Villains set, where every card has the goal of making you feel like you're playing as the villain. And this can come across very frequently and very often through a set's mechanics. So let's look at Battle for Zendikar's mechanical distribution uh, throughout its set skeleton. Battle for Zendikar actually has quite a few keyworded mechanics. So let's list those off real quick and then we can get into the details. So there's Landfall, Awaken, Rally, Converge, Devoid, and Ingest. So Landfall was one of the returning mechanics and they really wanted to make sure that it was, you know, recognized and, and seen as being brought back. Landfall ended up on 8 commons, 11 uncommons, 5 rares, and 3 mythic rares. 
So what that means is that the, the as fan, as we call it, of landfall is that you're going to be getting about 1.3 uh, landfall cards in each pack of 14 cards. Now landfall was only beat out by Devoid in terms of its actual as fan number. Uh, so Devoid showed up on 24 commons, 20 uncommons, 10 rares, and 1 mythic, earning an as fan of about 3.3. So you were on average going to see three and a third cards with Devoid in a single booster pack of Battle for Zendikar. That's a really high number. Very, very few mechanics actually have that high of an Asphian. Usually they range between like 0.7 and 1.6-ish. Devoid gets away with it because it's not actually a mechanic that does anything meaningful by itself. So it has very, very low actual interaction with the game on its own. Now, of course, that and several other issues contributed towards Battle for Zendikar not having a very balanced limited environment, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. The reason I bring up Asfan is that it's a really important methodology to keep track of while you're designing your limited environment, and you want to make sure that you're staying within the bounds that uh, successful sets have had before you. Now, there's a very useful tool that I use whenever I'm trying to examine previous sets as fans for their mechanics, and that's yeefbeer.com slash asfan. Uh, so that's y-e-e-f-b-e-a-r dot com slash a-s dash f-a-n. So check that out. Uh, it's really useful to be able to actually see how much a mechanic is represented in a set and use that as a basis for how frequently your own mechanics show up in your own sets. Now another point that I really want to drive home before we move any further is just that you really, really, really need to make sure that each card is serving your design goal specifically. A lot of the time, and I can't tell you how often I see it, where cards and even mechanics uh, are at odds with one another in the same set. Now this is hard to actually pin down in examples from Wizards because there really aren't that many snafus they've had in the same respect. The most infamous example comes all the way back from the Urza's block, where even though it was intended to be an enchantment-focused block, the most powerful cards ended up being artifacts, and it was known thereafter as an artifact block. So even though their stated design goal internally was to really push and empower enchantments to be a main focus, their enchantments weren't actually the shining feature, and the artifacts ended up being even more powerful and uh, useful than the enchantments did. A common method that I see custom designers falling for this trap is using, as an example case, using something like delve and flashback in the same set because they're graveyard mechanics um, and they both want you to have a lot of cards in your graveyard. The problem is that when you're delving you're actually taking those cards out of your graveyard so you're not actually trying to use your graveyard as any other kind of resource. So make sure that your components are serving your design goal and not clashing with each other. Okay so we've figured out what a limited environment is. We have our limited environment 
Let's say we've designed an initial batch of cards that fills out the set skeleton entirely, it fulfills our design goals, and, you know, more or less, it feels like magic. How do we make sure that that limited environment is going to at least be fun, right? Fun is really crucial to making a game, which is what you're doing when you're making a limited environment. You want to make sure that your players are having fun or else they won't play your game. So again, on the show before, we've talked about what really constitutes fun um, and how to find the fun. Uh, so check out the episode Fungasaur for more on that. Um, but in that episode, we identified a definition that's pretty all-encompassing when it comes to fun and how we can create fun for our players. So fun is all about creating challenging decisions for players to make where they input those decisions that they've made into a system and through some kind of black box of variance, the system gives them back a result. And as designers, we're the ones in control of that black box. So if you're wondering what makes a mechanic fun or what makes cards fun, what you want is for players to have interesting decision space where they can actually make some choices that they can feel good and empowered about. Kaladesh is all about this kind of fun. So with Kaladesh, you've got mechanics like energy, where you get some energy and you get to choose how you want to spend it, whether you want to spend it on uh, the creature that it uh, was created by or whether you want to spend it for something else. That decision about how to spend the resources that you've gained is a fun moment, right? That's a kind of a skill-testing, uh, empowering moment for players. Similarly with Fabricate, the choice between creating servos and going wide or getting plus one plus one counters and going tall is an empowering decision that players can leverage to their advantage. And there are meaningful trade-offs for each one, right? So within that decision space, players are finding fun. But that's not the only place that fun comes from, right? Fun also comes from variance and, and suspense and, you know, relief of tension like that. Um, so if you think back to Innistrad with the morbid mechanic, where basically cards would key off of whether something had died or not this turn. There's a lot of inbuilt tension there. There's some suspense any time that a creature attacks and you think, well, should I really block? You know, you you have that interesting decision space with you know, the, the terror of maybe some awful morbid something is going to happen, but maybe it won't. And maybe I'm just getting bluffed at, or, you know, maybe my opponent just wants this trade. Um, so that suspense is also a really important aspect of fun. And even just the, the baseline drawing a card for your turn, every turn, there's an element of suspense there. And what am I going to draw? Is it going to be the card I need? That simple moment is a fun moment. So those are some ways that we can, you know, think about how to leverage fun within individual cards and also within mechanics and the broader limited environment. If you have something like Morbid or something like Energy Counters or Fabricate, you're in a good spot. Make sure that you're giving your players decisions that they will have to really seriously consider and where they don't just have to do some math to figure out what the best thing is, but that there's some element of hope involved. It's also important to point out that 
while those are definitely the high moments for players, there are a lot of low moments that are kind of anti-fun that as designers we can do our best to mitigate. So one of the most frustrating things that players encounter in a game of Magic is the idea of uh, land screw or, or land flood, uh, where essentially you're not getting the right ratio of lands to spells early in the game um, that is basically just pushing you way too far behind one direction or another. So as designers, we can try to mitigate that with what we call smoothing mechanics. Um, so that's things like scry or clue tokens where players have better access to card selection in a pinch. And that card selection lets them better adapt to their exact situation, whether they have too many, too few lands, uh, the right kinds of threats, the right kind of answers, and allows them to play the game without getting bogged down in just too much unfortunate random outcome. Cycling was another great example of a smoothing mechanic in that it allows you to get rid of cards that you don't need and get new cards that you might better be able to use. It's really nice now that Scry is evergreen because it's something that can be included in every set in however much the set actually needs it in order to facilitate players having access to the right cards. If you have another idea for a smoothing mechanic, go ahead and use it in your set, but don't feel afraid to leverage Scry as an evergreen mechanic to allow your players to mitigate those unfun moments and allow themselves to have more frequent fun moments. Another major aspect of having fun built into your limited environment is having a variety of strategies that players can employ to try to win the game. And typically what you want is for those strategies to be specific to a color pair or a color grouping. Especially in your first set, I highly, highly recommend going for two color pair, um, so like white-blue flyers or um, black-red aggression. So interestingly, I think that Battle for Zendikar is actually a really great example of having fun and distinct archetypes uh, throughout the different color pairs. And even though Battle for Zendikar was really not a great draft format, that's more about the balance issues it had than the fun issues. So let's look at the archetypes that existed within Battle for Zendikar. Um, so in white-blue, there was an Awaken archetype. Uh, so this is using the Awaken mechanic uh, that lets you essentially pay extra on your spells to create a creature out of one of your lands. So white-blue basically ended up being kind of a control archetype because you wanted to be able to get up into these higher casting costs where you could really leverage the additional mana into creating these bigger land creatures and getting the value that way. Similarly, the blue-black deck, uh, which was very much an Eldrazi Devoid uh, archetype, fell into a control camp as well. Um, most of its early drops were kind of on the defensive side of things. And then the later drops, you know, through having some good control cards, were able to really push the envelope in terms of like just having really dominant finishers uh, in the limited environment. 
So blue-black ended up being more of an Eldrazi control deck, whereas black-red, even though it used a lot of the similar black cards, ended up being much more of a devoid aggro deck. The addition of red really turns the black card on, on their head to not necessarily trade up, but actually try to get involved in combat early and put a lot of pressure on your opponent rather than relieving pressure off of you. So the next archetype is red-green. Uh, red-green really focused on landfall and it was kind of like a mid-rangey tempo deck where you really wanted to make sure that you were hitting your land drops um, and you really wanted to be careful and cautious about when you were actually playing your land uh, in order to get maximum benefit out of your creatures. Landfall has proven to be a fun mechanic in theory uh, as long as the payoff is there. When we get in the balance section, we'll talk more about why Landfall really didn't have a lot of good payoff. Our next archetype is green-white. That ended up being kind of an allies mid-range type deck. You know, you basically have all the various allies synergy with Rally. It ends up being kind of a mid-range grind you out, pretty typical limited deck. Uh, White-black is our next one, and that one had a bit more of a twist to it. Uh, where you're playing allies that really care about getting life gain, with the Black Vampire allies caring about uh, gaining life, and then a lot of the white allies being able to enable that. Just really reasonable synergies there, you know, kind of giving you a new access to play on. Uh, while you're still playing with a lot of the same ally cards that you would be in other similar archetypes. So that's cool. You know, really using a lot of different cards together in different combinations to form really different strategies. Getting back into the Eldrazi side of things, you have blue-red, and where blue-black was kind of a control deck and black-red was more of an aggro deck, blue-red was really focused on tempo, which is kind of an in-between between aggro and control. Really impressed by Wizard's ability to use this kind of Grixis color triad to support three different styles of play using really the same set of cards. Which is really cool to see how all those things interacted and allowed players to really explore what they wanted to do with their card pool. So that's really cool. Uh, the black-green archetype was kind of a self-sacrifice archetype uh, where you had things like Eldrazi Scions, creatures that would die and give you Eldrazi Scions, and then payoff cards where they actually let you sacrifice cards for bonuses, where they cared about any time you sacrifice stuff. A lot of these cards ended up playing really well into some of the minor themes that were going around with the Eldrazi Scions. And you know, even if you weren't necessarily playing these cards in black-green specifically, there were enough synergies elsewhere in the set where you could splash them in if you were already playing black or green to you know, have kind of some incidental synergies in your deck. Uh, the last two archetypes are red-white, which was an aggressive allies build. Uh, so unlike the green-white or white-black build, uh, red-white allies was really all about going at you hard and fast and just kind of breaking through the lines and doing more of a blitz style with your rally triggers. Finally, we've got green-blue converge. Um, so I, I call this green-blue, but really when you're playing the Converge archetype, you're probably splashing one or even two other colors into it. Green and, to a lesser extent, blue had enough options for how they could actually achieve that splash. Um, but 
in general, I think that this was a bit uh, underwhelming and a big reason why green was unplayable as a color. Green was just such a trap in Triple Battle for Zendikar. Converge could have made for some really compelling hoop jumping for players to be able to, you know, jump through some hoops, get some different colors of mana, play up that feeling of all the different colors working together, but the implementation here just didn't really fulfill that idea of hoop jumping and that, that fun aspect on a macro scale. The micro scale, it kind of works, you know, you get your 3-4 uh, your for 3 and that feels fine. Uh, you get your maybe 3-3, three, 4-4, three, four, four, maybe 5-5 five, five, uh, flyer at the uncommon slot. Uh, and that feels cool when you actually are able to you know piece together all five different colors and get your 5-5. Five, five. But the problem was there wasn't enough splashy payoff for it uh, at the higher rarities. And that's a really good segue into kind of the next aspect of fun I really wanted to point out is that, well... The commons and uncommons form the basis and the, the, you know, the foundation of your limited environment. Your rares and mythics, and to a lesser extent, your kind of focused uncommons, are there to add a splash and add a lot of the fun elements into the limited environment. You know, we talk a lot about how fun is caused by variance, and rare slots are all about variance. You only have one rare in each pack, with the exception of foils, and it really can twist your card pool quite a bit, where, you know, you have this rare that's usually more on the powerful side of things than, say, a common would be, because it has that budget for it, and it's really pushing you. It's it's designed with the intent to push you in a direction. So as a designer, it's your job to make sure that your rares are pushing people in directions that you want them to go to. Uh, and that those directions that you're pushing them into are directions where they're going to actually have fun. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to make your rares a payoff card, uh, where all the pieces to, are coming together at the foundational level are creating a really fun experience when you actually play that cool rare uh, that you've been waiting to draw this whole game. Okay, so we've got a pretty good idea of how fun gets put into a limited environment. Let's talk about balance. When we're talking about balance, we're really talking about uh, making sure that the strategies are fairly well uh, balanced and that there's you know, a good chance that each of them will win. There's not just one strategy that's completely overpowering or one strategy that's just completely unviable. And that's the unfortunate thing that happened in Battle for Zendikar. With the color green in particular, a lot of those cards ended up just really being nerfed too hard during development and even though things worked out okay once oath of the gatewatch was added to the limited draft environment the damage was done and green was really just seen as not viable as a color so even though wizards had created all these interesting green archetypes the cards themselves were so undertuned you know they were they were overcosted understated etc to such an extent that Battle for Zendikar draft was essentially a four-color environment. So how do we, as designers, avoid this pitfall in our own limited environments and in our own sets? The answer comes in playtesting. You've got to playtest your set as much as you can, as, as often and as soon as you can, in order to be able to get actual physical data about your set that's beyond a forum's theory crafting. You know, we've talked a lot about playtesting already on the podcast, but I will just kind of say again, 
when you're playtesting, there are some basic questions you want to be asking people. You want to make sure that you're asking whether they're having fun or not, whether what they're doing feels like they're playing magic or not, and whether they're feeling the way that your design goal is asking them to feel. So those are kind of the three major questions that you want to make sure you're asking your playtesters. Um, and you know you also want to eventually, once you're ready for more specific balance critique, you want to be asking them whether cards feel good, uh, like like too good uh, to play, or if they feel bad to play. Focus on how cards feel rather than how people think they're tuned. Uh, you'll get much more valid feedback that way. And even before you start playtesting, and especially while you're making revisions in response to playtesting, what you really want to make sure to do is, is to be sure that you're keeping your curve where you want it to be for each color, and you want to make sure that you're keeping the relevant power levels between each color's common suite of cards relatively consistent. So you don't want to have like three unplayable blue cards and no unplayable white cards. You want to make sure that ideally none of your cards are actually unplayable. Um, you want to make sure that a few of them are just like so niche that uh, they'll only be played some of the time in uh, like one archetype. That's kind of the the place to go for having quote unplayable cards in your environment. And more often than not, what you'll find is that cards that can fit into multiple archetypes are the ones that are really sought after. So for example, in Battle for Zendikar, there's three different Devoid archetypes and Benthic Infiltrator, the 1-4 uh, with Ingest that can't be blocked for three mana in blue, uh, was really crucial to both the black-blue archetype and the blue-red archetype. So it's filling multiple roles for multiple archetypes at a pretty high level. That made that card really, really uh, desirable and forced it to be an early pick in the draft. So you want to have a fair number of cards that are desirable in multiple archetypes per color, and that creates tension during the actual drafting portion of a limited event. And just kind of on a general note as far as balance goes, usually you want to stick to wizard's formulas and guidance in terms of how to cost in the baselines of how you're going to design your cards. So like you don't want to design something that's just horrendously overpowered for its cost. Even if everything is horrendously overpowered for its cost, and you know things are like equal that way, you're gonna have a hard time actually finding the balance points without having kind of the already predetermined baseline that Wizards had lined out for us. And it'll also be harder for players to judge just how they should be picking their cards, right? You wanna make sure that players really have a basis of comfort when they're starting your set. Um, because they're already going to be a little overwhelmed with all the new designs. And, you know, if those designs are too foreign to them, uh, they're going to have a really hard time accepting them. When it comes to just costing things, that's one of the easiest things to give feedback on as a participant in a custom magic community. 
So if you're not sure what a card ought to cost, there are a few resources you can try out. Um, so the first thing that you want to do is use a card engine, so something like Gatherer, uh, but probably one of the more lightweight tools like magiccards.info or scryfall.com to do a search and try to figure out if any similar cards already exist and what kind of cost that uh, Wizards has put on those cards. Alternatively, you can always turn to your custom magic community, uh, whether that's Discord or MTG Salvation or whatever else, and ask your community, hey, what should this cost? You know, what, what are your thoughts if you're not sure? That's one of the easier questions that a community can answer, and it's really helpful uh, to be able to get that kind of feedback. So when it comes to designing your limited environment to be fun and balanced, I hope this episode has been a help to you. I'd like to thank Zarator for his excellent question. And I encourage all of you to come to me or the podcast uh, if you have similar questions about any kind of topics you'd like to cover. And I think that'll be it for this week. So thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. You can get in contact with the podcast by emailing cardographycast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud to keep up with the latest content. We'll see you next week.